0: Welcome to episode number one of The Walter Show. Episode one is always pretty special. And for that reason, I've invited a very special guest to come on the show. Oskar Höglund is the co-founder and CEO of Epidemic Sound. And if you don't know what Epidemic Sound is, I can tell you for sure that you've heard their music. Because that music is
1: everywhere. We're at a point where our music is being played 40, 50 billion times a month
0: across the internet. Wait, wait, with a B? Yes, with a B. 40 to 50 billion times a month? That is becoming a serious player in the music industry. And I'm so happy to have him here. We actually use Epidemic Sound Music all the time in our company as well. And uh, I'm pretty sure that most of your favorite restaurants, favorite YouTubers, favorite... Everythings on the internet are using it as well. So I'm just super excited to have Oscar here. For these episodes, we're trying to keep them around half an hour, maybe 45 minutes, but this conversation just went on because there was so, so much interesting stuff in there. So I decided to split this episode into two parts, where the first part is about Oscar, his background, his views on entrepreneurship and running a company, and the second part is gonna be about Epidemic Sound specifically. So grab a cup of coffee and listen now to part one and check back in next week for part two about Epidemic Sound. And here is Oskar Herglund. Great to have you here. And you went into music. You're a music man. Yes, that's how it turned out.
1: I think it's interesting because many of the biggest decisions you tend to make in your life are made of chance, right? So small decisions you can pour tons of time and reasoning into, but the really big ones, they happen more or less by serendipity or by chance. And so my way into the music industry was definitely not a straight line. Uh, I started very much as a numbers guy. So uh, I came from the Stockholm School of Economics. Dad was a banker, grandfather was a banker, like everyone was working around numbers. And I knew I didn't want to do specifically that, but I had a knack for numbers. I worked as a consultant for a couple of years, but I realized that that wasn't sort of the thing that I wanted to do either, a number of reasons for that. And then I wanted to change and do something totally different, and I got introduced to television. And so sort of backing up a bit, one of the reasons why I left consultancy was it was extremely like fast learning curve. But I realized at some point that I couldn't really see myself like 10 years going forward. I didn't have a clear role model, somebody whose life I wanted to have. And when I extrapolated backward, I'm like, would I like to have her life in 10 years? No, his life in five years. No, her life in two years. And the answer was no to all the questions. I had to quit because I was looking for somebody who I could look up to. And this was my first job. Parents were super concerned. You can't go from a job. You have to go to a job. Uh, my friends were like, you're insane. You can't leave this job. It's a great job. And for me, it was quite clear. I was fairly okay at it, but not great. And I wasn't happy and I didn't have a role model. So I was like, I, I should go. Eventually, I came into contact. I met all different kinds of people from different kinds of industries. And I got introduced to this Swedish guy. And his name is Patrick Svensk, which is funny given his last name. Yeah. And he's Swedish.
0: Our paths crossed there for a minute.
1: Yes, that's right. That's, yeah. We that's both... when we bumped into each other again, yeah. right? We had the same boss. Yeah. Patrick taught me a lot. So he was running a TV production company, and uh, he was crucial for my journey in the sense that he was somebody who had a numbers background, but he had veered much more towards the content production side of things. So he he was, I guess, like a, a data point for me showing that some numbers people could sort of add value in different contexts, and there were different routes you could sort of walk down. And he was looking for somebody who could make coffee, and. Um, put the company on the stock exchange, somebody who could organize a great office party and assist in buying companies. And I immediately loved the culture. I loved the feeling. The um, company was Zodiac Television, and it was a production company, which was out in Frihamnen, which is a cool area. You know it well. And um, so that was my first foray into any kind of creativity, because I was put in a context where everyone was totally different. And that was something very new and very invigorating for me because I'd been in a context where everyone was similar. We were miniature clones of each other. So we'd all gone to prominent business schools. We'd all done MBA-esque things. We all worked 80 hours a week. And we were very, very similar. I popped into Zodiac and I'm this nervous guy and the chief creative officer, his name is Zach. I'll get back to him later on. He's now my co-founder and my partner in all the business endeavors I do. But I find myself in a context where everyone is different. Uh, so I'm thrown into this room where they're developing a TV show, and somebody says, yeah, I have this great idea Let's put people on an island, more or less. And I'm like, okay, that's a strange idea. And then somebody says, yeah, no, I know how to film it. I know how to sort of make it interesting. This is how we tell the stories. And then eventually somebody goes, yes, yeah, so and we need a budget around this. And people cringe, and they look like somebody just died. It's like, <laughs> ooh, numbers. And so I raised my hand. I'm like, I'm actually quite good with numbers. I could do this. And they're like, wow, really? I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. And it's five, so people leave, uh, and they go home. I go back to my desk, and I sit down, put in some good music, start building a case, Excel, like assumptions, and I build this model, and I email it out, get home at eight, meet my wife. and I'm like, honey, I'm home. We can have dinner. He's like, wow, you're early today. I'm like, yes, it's great, right? <laughs> and that's late for television. That was super late, <laughs> it turns out, because I come back the next morning. I'm in at maybe 8.30, and it's television, so people don't drop in until 9.10, and they drop in, and um, they come one after one, and they come over to my desk, and they're like... So Oscar, we had this meeting last night. I mean, yeah, you mean at five? Yes, that's what I said, last night. I'm like, okay. Did <laughs> you mean sub- the lunch meeting? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they go, uh, and you were supposed to do this budget. And then this morning in my inbox, I had like the budget already done. So when did you have time to do that? I said, well, last evening, of course. I'm like, wow, so you worked during the night? And that's when it dawned on me, sort the, of the power of putting yourself in a context where you're different. So your skill set is different. So not only does that add like the, the outcome becomes much more accelerating, much more exciting, but it's also when people value what you know because you're different. right? So that really creates a lot of endorphins. So one of the things that I hold like super true is you need to own your endorphins. So really taking care of them and making sure that you cultivate
0: and grow them and, and, and that they explode at the right times yeah. and on a regular basis. You have, these were actually two pieces of advice, one of which kind of, oh, we almost missed it, but it was fantastic. You said that you wanted to be in a context where you were different, so that people appreciate your skill set. Yeah, that's profound. Mm. Also, very true when you look for a partner, people tend to gravitate towards people that are like them. Yeah, and that's probably, the, I would say, probably the the worst and most common mistake you can make in yeah. in finding a partner. Yeah, I totally agree. You, you fight, you know, you both want to do the same thing. Mm. Uh, and you don't really appreciate each other, you, more, you compete more than you appreciate. You yeah, know? no, I,
1: I can, I 100% agree with that statement. And I think that it holds totally true for me because starting at Zodiac, I remember the first time I met Zach. So, some context Zach is, his full name is Jan Sakerson, and he was one of the co founders of TV4, co founder of Jaroski, and he and I have, I think, co founded six or seven different companies together. He's super prominent sort of creative force in the Swedish creative scene. And when I met him, it was obvious to your point that we were very, very different. So he's 15 years my senior. He's a punk rocker from the north of Sweden. He moved to Stockholm because he got signed with Miss Lur and he toured with his band Distinct and uh, A and all different kinds of very prominent punk artists, especially in Sweden. Then he started doing tons of music videos for all the different big acts because his music videos wasn't a thing back then. So he was the pioneer, basically. And then eventually when TV4 got started, he was the head of entertainment so for the first eight years and came up with or played a massive part in many of the shows which still run today, right? So it's yeah. Bingo, Lotto, Fonga, Fortet, all different kinds of things. Sol to mention some of the new stuff as well. He was totally different from me, but I immediately felt when, when I met him, I felt that, wow, if my life is anything like his life in 15 years, I'll be in a very happy place. He took his job very seriously, but he didn't take himself seriously. He had a massive amount of EQ and IQ. And I think what I've really, really appreciated is that he loved the sell, as in the hustle, selling stuff, because that was not commonplace back when you and I started, right? So business school was very much about you should be into finance and accounting. That's what all the cool and smart kids are doing. And I just wasn't that into it. I didn't find that fun. I didn't find it exhilarating. So the first two years, I partied a lot, did all kinds of stuff and sort of went traveling and things. Uh, I took a break, moved to France, uh, tried to learn uh, French, which was uh, fairly successful. Don't quiz me on that. (laughs) Um, But then when I came back, I realized that I really loved the art of selling. I liked the idea of building companies and I had like a strong feeling that, well, you can't really talk about uh, profit and loss if there is no revenue. You need to build revenues, right? And so I decided to go into... um, Management and entrepreneurship. And this was pre-Klarna, this was pre-Spotify, pre-iSettle. It was not cool to even think about becoming an entrepreneur back then. The only people who became entrepreneurs in people's minds were people who wanted to avoid tax.
0: (laughs) That was the only reason. Well, some people still think so. Yeah, some do. Um, and by the way, I should say we need to fight that because entrepreneurship right now is so important for yeah, everything.
1: Yeah. And I, I I have a lot of opinions in terms of what I think are the actual driving forces behind entrepreneurship and sort of how you promote it. But let's dive back to that. And so I, I come back there and I realize that I think sort of selling stuff is really cool. I think that's what I would like to do. But it was a struggle because nobody else was sort of as passionate or thought that was fun. Audience enough, though, because I enjoyed it, sort of suddenly school went better, grades got higher, sort of all kinds of doors got opened. I got to go with my then girlfriend, now wife. We moved to Philadelphia. Uh, we did the Wharton experience, which was cool because going to an MBA school in the US, I think my eyes popped in terms of what it takes to succeed. I saw raw ambition, like near. And it was, it was astounding to me that I thought that I'd come from a fairly good European school. But when... When when a teacher was sick in Philly, the students were like, too bad, hope you get well soon. When do we get the makeup lesson? What evening will you come and teach us what you were intending to teach us those 60 minutes? There was like a ferocious hunger for learning, which was, I wasn't aware of that feeling because in in Sweden and in Europe, my feeling had much more been, I go to the lessons, if there's no lessons, fine, I can skip. I, I basically wanna learn stuff, but it's not super crucial. But everyone over there was like really intentive. I want to learn, I'm yeah. here to learn.
0: And if, if you're unable to do it today, I expect you to make that up in your free time. You know, this is my exact, not experience I would say, but th- this is what I hear when I talk to people from, from the, I have some friends who've gone to you know, the good ones, the Stanfords mm-hmm. and the MITs and all that. And it just, Blows my mind how we can even compete. The, the, how can we possibly have made Spotify mm-hmm. and you know, Skype and you know, companies here that compete with American companies given that we, they are so much more ambitious, it mm-hmm. feels like, in mm-hmm. the school? Mm-hmm. What, what's, what's with that, do you think? So jumping into that subject, I would say that for me, I have this whole
1: idea of how stuff works. And it, it breaks down into the, the driving forces behind entrepreneurship, where some countries get it wrong, some countries get it right. I think that there's an assumption that people want to become entrepreneurs because of financial gain. And that it's all about if you optimize from a tax perspective for entrepreneurs so they make enormous amounts of money, that's going to lead to a society where you see more sort of entrepreneurs. I fundamentally don't believe that to be true. That's not my driving force. It never has been. And I think that's sort of a way where Sweden has cracked it and sort of why we are seeing that kind of. Companies of popping up on a somewhat regular basis in Sweden is because it more has to do with risk. We've been really good at collectivizing risk. So I'm I'm, I'm stealing this quote from a, from a conference where there was a panel about Sweden, where the where the panel was aimed at trying to answer the question, "What's up with Sweden? Why are they doing so well?" And there was this one guy in the panel. His name is Carl. Um, he does he did Ticktail. Oh oh, he's the godfather of my son.
0: <laughs> uh, you know him well.
1: So we're in Bromma, right? Yeah. Um, and Carl said something very profound which stuck with me and this is maybe almost 10 years ago he amazing said that amazing guy by the way he's super smart very cool and Carl said that well I think that what's great with Sweden is that we've collectivized risk in the sense that I know if, if I place a bet or try and do something and I fail I know that society will catch me my kids can still go to school they can go to daycare I can get healthcare I can still get housing people are going to pick me up and my life is not going to fall down so collectively so by by having a fairly like by paying, let's say healthy or high taxes, we collectivize that risk and we put it in a pool. And so an individual can afford to take a lot of risk and try a lot of ideas. And when they stumble, because inevitably they do, I believe that Carl, myself, that's of other entrepreneurs I've seen around typically have four, five, six, seven startups before they get it right. You, you lift yourself up, you brush yourself off and off you go again. So the concept of optimizing for collective risk, I think, feeds much more entrepreneurship than the idea of being much more individualistic. And I think, to that extent, Sweden's gotten it more right than the U.S. Sort of to to counter the whole. There's more raw ambition, there's more drive and grit in the U.S. Whereas I can do this, but the system we've built here helps, like, in so many ways to to encourage people to take risk and build stuff. So I think that's I think, like one big part of it. The other part I think has to do with the notion of how how we work. People mock and make fun of the Swedes because we're consensus driven, right? Yeah. And it's a blessing and it's a curse, but I think there's more pros than there are cons. So other nationalities, other people I've seen when they try and come together and work, there's a, either a very strong hierarchy where people feel compelled to listen to the boss, even though she or he may be wrong. And so execution fails, there's in inbound fighting, Swedes tend to sit down and because we have a lot of job security, which is arguably like, this goes very political. Uh, It's not my intention. But if you have a lot of job security, you feel quite uh, secure about telling your boss, I actually think you're wrong. In the US, if you think, say your boss is wrong, you get fired, you have two weeks, get up and you can leave. So you can't place long-term bets. It has to be short-term optimization. You have to play with the team. In Sweden, I think that sometimes, not always, but it's sometimes placed to our advantage because we can take a more of a long-term view on things. And the consensus driver sort of within businesses helps us to sit down and, and I go, I think I have a good idea. I'm the CEO. We should be doing this. And then somebody says, well, it's a 50% of your idea is good, but 50% is actually awful because you misread this problem. This is how you should be doing it. Yeah. And we're totally fine with that. And... We don't get sort of, uh, out of the gates that fast, but we discuss and eventually we come to like, this is what we think is the optimal solution. And then we crush it at execution. Yeah. As in like, we're really, really sort of well put together and we get shit done. Yeah. We're almost as good as the Finns, but not quite. <laughs> not quite. I think we maybe <laughs> communicate
0: a little bit better, uh, but now we're going very stereotypical. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, no. I've interviewed people there. They're kick ass. Yeah. Execution is their thing. Yeah. But really... we're good too. Yeah. We're okay.
1: I, I think we're okay. We're getting by. That was a long winded answer to your question. Oh, yeah. We're th- we're digressing into different topics here. Yeah. But that's
0: fine. That's it's, it's our podcast. We can decide. Good. <laughs> cool. So I think that that culture also is very beneficial to creativity mm. because creativity is also tied to risk. Mm. If you know, if you come up with ideas that are way crazy, mm. they also have you know a way high risk, mm. and uh, you don't tell your boss if you know that you can get fired at any time. You mm. don't. Maybe won't take that risk. Correct. I mean, what people say, breakthroughs are ins- you know, always viewed as insanity mm. until they succeed. Yeah, which is you know, just logic. Mm. Of course, it is. And it, I think that culture of of being like more safe and secure, and also in some ways, consensus mm. promotes creativity. Yeah. in that way and, and innovation. Mm. And that's been beneficial to us, I think.
1: Yeah, I also think that structure helps because I think that there's this flawed picture of creativity is this crazy ass person who sits alone, cuts off his or her ear, and then gets inspiration and writes something, and then sort of, and then nothing. I tend to find that many of the most creative people who are creative over time tend to be super well organized, like super structured. There's there's a process, there are ideas sort of that gets worked out in a certain way. I don't know if it's true, but sort of people who write, I've been told that sort of they tend to say that there are specific hours when I sit down and write and do stuff. And I think adding structure to creativity is, is crucial. Yeah, And I think that goes against the common conception that creativity yeah. is like a spark of genius and you can't really plan for it other than try and sleep a lot and that's
0: it. Yeah, but I think, I think it's actually uh, true. I mean, creativity can be there in both types of people, but the, the disorganized ones don't get the output done. Agreed. And, and I think you have um, uh, many, many examples. I mean, it's a way of coping with, uh, I think creativity many times is tied to some sort of free association of the mind mm. and which can in turn be tied to ADHD and that type of thing, because mm. it's, 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 a, it's hard to focus on one thing and stay focused because you kind of digress into different uh, associative paths. Mm. And if you have a way of coping with that, like for example, being very rigid with your schedule, mm then you can create massive amounts of output. Mm. But if you don't have a way of coping with that, well, then it's just going to be um, um, uh, chaos. Yeah. You know? yeah, I agree. So mm. I think that when you see people like that, it's uh, it's very true. And it's also quite profound, if you think of it in terms of being a boss mm. of a creative organization, to mm. make sure that you help people manage their internal chaos yeah. you know, in the in the very creative people. Yeah,
1: I totally agree. And I think it's, that's also, it's a, dual challenge because one you need to get to that insight and two also acknowledging that people are so very different especially when it comes to managing and understanding your own creativity or your own output for that matter um there isn't a one-size-fits-all so i think that that's one of the things that our companies where we do stuff we always try and make sure that people own their own happiness own their own output and um their own endorphins yes and and own their own endorphins and 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 i um I tend to like to make a point out of it because it you work differently right and to some extent we're all animals and we and you can understand yourself so I'm way better in the afternoons than in the mornings oh wow and so you and I would be the perfect team <laughs> exactly <laughs> we, right <laughs> we could make a full-time <laughs> uh, you know em- employee the two of us together <laughs> finally
0: you complete me <laughs> i'm worthless in the afternoon uh,
1: uh, and i'm really good so in terms of meetings and stuff i try and book that in the afternoons I tend to be more optimistic towards the end of the week and more pessimistic towards the beginning of the week. But I understand that. So I can use that to my advantage when I sort of set my sort of weeks up, my meetings up and sort of how I want to think and, and get things done. I, I, I feel I'm great at thinking when I exercise. So actually, sort of when I have a huge problem to crack, I always go running and I have either my phone or a piece of paper or whatever it might be, because at some point it's almost like I can feel my pulse hitting a certain number and I can feel more oxygen coming to my brain. And I'm like, oh, I see it clearly now. Yeah, this yeah. is what we have to do. And I stop and there's like sweat everywhere and I just write it down or I'm texting my phone and it's sweaty and I can't get it down. So I, sort of, I call myself and I'm I reading the message. Yeah, yeah. But I use sort of how, sort of, in, my, in my case, like process to get my creative space or to get that sort of, output that I want to achieve yeah. and that's me other people can be totally different
0: yeah, there's massive uh, amounts of research supporting that though that hmm. uh, running and exercising is uh, is a great way of uh, I don't know it has something to do with the oxygen to the brain and, you know or something like that. it feels like that at least yes yeah. uh, I, I'm not sure I, I you know I, I don't know the details here but uh, I know that there is a uh, that's what research says so yeah. you're, you're definitely in the right spot okay. here <laughs> moving in the right direction yeah yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, so I think that's crucial to understand yeah. sort of how you tick and how you work as an individual.
0: Have you gotten help with that or by some coach or a ter- therapist or something like that? Or have you discovered it yourself?
1: No, I would very much say that it's been totally based on interactions with other people who are way smarter than I am and have more experience. I think that that's one of one of like the most important things in life is to try and, as in work life, is... How can you? I'm laughing because I'm looking at your picture all the time. Oh, you mean the giant penis? Yes, there's a giant penis looking, staring me in the face when I'm trying to answer that question. So I'm smiling. People's patterns. (laughs) I'm broken. (laughs) Sorry, I should remove the penis. It destroys my (laughs) my line of thinking. Goes in a somewhat different direction. Surrounding yourself, A, with people who are smarter than you are and who compliment you so you're different. That's one part of it. But number two, I think that one of my mojos, so um, my name is Oscar, but my friends will call me Piggy. Yeah. Growing up in UK, that was quite tough, right? So I was this kid, and in English, my name would translate to Piggy Hogland. <laughs> There's this wonderful song by Johnny Cash called A Boy Named Sue. And it's about this guy who gets, um, his father leaves him at a very young age, but before he does, he gives him a name, which is Sue. And so he has to fight his entire life and he has to sort of get tough or he's going to die trying. And they sort of meet up in the end and there's this whole sort of explanation and it's a very insightful song. And so I think the, sort of, the sense of of having it a little bit tougher, a little bit of revenge sort of can really sort of help ignite you. Young, young age, I was this sort of huge... I was a huge baby when I was born. So almost like five kilos and I had jaundice, So I was all yellow and I had red hair back then. And I was twice the size of all the kids in the UK in Westminster where I was born. And so there's this long row of small kids. So they are, they're pale, they're screaming and they're like uh, three kilos. And in the middle, there's this gigantic <laughs> baby, five kilo, all yellow with like red hair. And I'm constantly smiling, right? Yeah. And so my parents say, he's so wide awake and in Swedish it's pig. And so right. I get the nickname Pig, yeah. Yeah. And I'm 41 now and, and it's stuck with me my entire life. But the the point of that story is I've always been Pig. So I've always been an optimist. I've always been positive. And I've been it by choice. Because it's not something that you're born with that comes naturally. A glass with water to the middle. So it's, it's a choice you make if you say it's half full or if it's half empty. But the implications are enormous because if you're the person who says the glass is half empty all the time, you're going to bring other people down around you. You're not going to benefit and create something that you can build off of. But by choosing to be the person who says, no, I I choose to see this glass as half full. And by choosing to uh, cultivate almost your mojos, you create an environment where you lift other people. But even more important, where where you ask a lot of questions and you encourage people to want to help you. I think that's one of like, the core, core traits in, in being an entrepreneur or building like, a, a successful culture or company. You want to create an organization where people want you as an individual and the collective as, as a company to do really well. And you do that by understanding people, by making sure they feel that their knowledge is valued and that you want to learn from them. So back to the, so how do you get to these insights? Well, you ask people who obviously know more than you do, so how does that work? You're attentive, you ask questions, and they get super, super excited about saying, it's interesting you should ask that. I spent 10 years thinking about it, and this is how it plays out. And you're like, wow, I just did a massive shortcut. And it's because you want to be able to have people want to help you. That's like a super important skill because there are a lot of very bright people out there. Um, I think a great case in point, I don't know if I'm going to get into trouble for this, (laughs) Oh, mm. now I love this. Uh, no, but uh, like a concrete example. So Nokia. So yeah. back in the day when you and I were at Zodiac, um, how I fell into creativity was the CEO needed a sidekick. I did great coffee. I could buy companies. I eventually got to be in charge for mobile TV, web TV, IP TV, Everything was digital. It's called multimedia back then, which is really embarrassing. It's, <laughs> it's on our shit list. We never used that word. Uh, together with relax and yeah, a couple of other words. And so I was in that digital space. And the 800 pound gorilla at the time was Nokia. Nokia was like the juggernaut. This is pre iPhone, pre like broadband, obviously no Spotify, but Nokia was the content hub. But they were super arrogant. They were like always trying to sort of get the best deal possible. They didn't sort of care about other people. It was quite obvious that they were in it for themselves and they were super successful. But it was a very detrimental like, a, a non-helpful culture on the outside for them because i didn't want them to do well i was always pissed because they had all these power and we made channels and shows and all kinds of stuff for them and a few others but they were always it's almost like they were they were good looking and they knew that they were and so eventually when they ran into trouble, when they sort of, they scoffed at the iPhone and the iPhone suddenly became a thing. Uh, and then sort of Samsung and everyone else played catch up and Nokia famously, their platform is burning. And so sort of, we need to jump. But I think everyone who they partnered with stood on the sidelines, arms crossed, me included, and saying some sort of, you right. Yeah. I had no intent of helping them because I was so fed up. There were so many years where they'd been like the top dog but they'd been quite arrogant about it. And yeah. they didn't create that culture that, that they felt that I wanted to help them. Right. And so that's like one example of, sort of what happens if you don't cultivate the culture, like platform thinking, inclusiveness, questions, yeah. valuing other people's
0: decisions, you're in for like a lot of trouble. This I would is uh, Darwinism. <laughs> <It> <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, it is. That's, I mean, that's how we developed uh, these social skills to be able to work as uh, bigger yeah. communities than our families. Yeah. Uh, or closest kin, you know, mm. and and uh, that came from, it's like the research says it was bats. If you mm. look at, they've looked at bats where they see that bats that came back with food and gave to the others, they were helped when they needed food and the, ne- the next night when oh. they they didn't catch anything. And that's kind of how it works. So when you're doing really well, yeah. make sure you help people. yeah, Because, you know, there may come a day. Yes, I,
1: I, and, and I, I totally live by that. I, that's like a very, very important way of sort of how you conduct yourself, okay. both, I think, privately and definitely publicly in, in business.
0: Yeah, I think I, I don't want to get too deep into the philosophy, but I do think that, I mean, we are one big organism, mm. you know, mm. and uh, I call it the big life. Mm-hmm. And the big life is uh, everybody, yeah. everything that's alive. Mm. And, uh, you know, if you look at what's the meaning of life, well, I'm doing my part in the big life. Yeah. And if that's how you look at it, then you want the entire organism to succeed. Yeah. That takes this type of um, reciprocity is yeah. a huge part of that. Mm. I agree. but uh, So we are digressing way, way (laughs) off topic here. (laughs) It's beautiful, right? It's beautiful. (laughs) So this is the end of part one, where we talked about, well, I guess everything except Epidemic Sound. So don't miss next week's episode where we dig deep into Epidemic Sound for another half hour. And I promise you, there's so much interesting stuff in there. So you really don't want to miss that.
1: But we're now seeing a scenario where we believe that we can help soundtrack the world.
0: Tune in. I'll see you next week.